Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Lord, we long to see you afresh this morning. And so would you come and uh, meet us as we look at your word together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm giving you advance warning the next Sunday, the hour goes ahead. So we will have a, um, depending, we may have a myriad of services. We may have an 8, an 8.15, a 9, and a 9.15, or a 10 and a 10.15. So depending on how well you... Uh, Keep in step, you'll be there. Um, these kind of surveys are things that draw the, uh, preachers' attention, so there, there's no reason you would have seen it, but Barna recently surveyed uh, a sampling of Americans from coast to coast, asking them what their favorite Bible verse was. Um, the top hit was Genesis 1, in the beginning, right? Um, John 3.16, as we see, was here. And then a third one which is this, um, God loves, God helps those who helps themselves. <laughs> Not actually a Bible verse. If you'd like to read it as full context, you'll have to read uh, Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. But it's interesting, isn't it? God helps those who help themselves. What, what kind of gospel is that? It's a gospel that says God so loves the capable that he gave his only son, that none, the capable will never perish but have eternal life. The, the real passage is a lift from Isaiah 25 which says God loves the helpless. God loves the helpless. 
In our passage this morning, though, you, you know what's coming with John 3.16. We have uh, a real gem that, like, that are scattered throughout John, which are these intimate conversations. And, um, and we, we really get to see an in-close dialogue. And, and in, in this passage, in John chapter 3, we have this conversation, which is, uh, you know, obviously well-known to anyone who's been around the church for a hot minute. And it's a conversation with Nicodemus. And what do we know about Nicodemus? Well, we don't know that much, but we know a little bit. And what we do know is that he's a Pharisee. Not only is he a Pharisee, but he's a member of the Sanhedrin. It says that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And so what this tells us is that this is someone who moves in the religious circles and the political circles. Um, He's someone that has perhaps perspective that others wouldn't. And he's someone who's very much invested in the status quo. Let's keep things as they are. We found a way to work with the Romans. We found a way to do our thing. Let's not shake the boat. Let's not, let's keep it as it is. Um, And so when does the conversation took place? Well, it's interesting how John sets this. So before John chapter three comes, no surprise, John chapter two. And in John chapter two, during the Passover, Jesus goes to the temple. Now, it wasn't the first time he'd ever gone to the temple. He'd gone to the temple, as was the custom, many a times. But this time he goes and he clears the temple. He has filled with righteous anger. He makes a whip. You know, very public display. And so we read in John 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees. Let me read it in the ESV, which you have in front of you. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Um, So it's one of the few moments where Jesus meets with another religious leader privately. This is not a public meeting. Um, And it comes at night. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I would hear that they came, it was at night because it was secretive. Uh, the thing is, the text doesn't tell us that he's meeting in secret. It just tells us that he was meeting at night. And if, as John has put here, um, this is still going on during the feast of the Passover, then the fact that he's come at night is significant. Um, because what it, if this is the Passover, then we have to look back to Exodus 12. And if we look back to Exodus 12, that's the night where the people of Israel were were told to cook a lamb, to take the blood of the lamb and to place it on the the door and just so that the, so that the, because the Lord was gonna stand vigil over the house of Israel as he went over it and was gonna protect them from the destruction that was about to happen. And the instruction is, is that on this night, forevermore, Stand vigil because the Lord stood vigil over you. So this isn't just some rando meeting at night. This is happening on a very specific evening that for someone like Nicodemus and for someone with a a Jewish background would see that this is a very charged encounter and it's happening in private and we get to listen in. And so Nicodemus opens up He came to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi. Now, if he was just a religious leader, that would convey incredible respect. 
but because we also moves amongst the Herodians, the, the, the political crew, he's giving, he's affording Jesus respect that he shouldn't really, because Jesus never trained formally in the system as a rabbi. So he's either sweetening him up, or he's actually, we just don't know the difference. But you can see here, there, there is a constant political overtone. And we see very quickly that Nicodemus has met his match. So he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. And in reply, Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can see. And so we have this incredible thing that you can't see what's happening because you need to be born again, which is not what Nicodemus was expecting, which is evident by his response. He says in verse four, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asks. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, Nicodemus isn't being obtuse. You know, he's not suddenly, you know, the spirit of stupidity hasn't descended upon him. He is actually saying in a very rabbinic way that once you've had an experience, you cannot go back to have it again. That's why a first impression is a first impression, right? And so he goes on and he says, um, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. And this phrase of born of water and the spirit is referring to a spiritual birth, which is cleanses you from sin and brings spiritual transformation and renewal. And if this is happening on the last night of the Passover when you're meant to be keeping, keeping vigil because this is where your identity is rooted, then Nicodemus is thinking, but we've already been through the Exodus. We've already left Egypt. I know we have Rome. Rome's a bit of a problem because we are currently oppressed. We've found our way to work through it, but what are you talking about? This spiritual birth. And what is he referring to with water and spirit? Well, we might think, well, is he talking about baptism? Is he talking about uh, the party of the Red Sea? What is Jesus referring to here? Well, Jesus is referring to the promise of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. So this is temple imagery. And in the previous chapter, Jesus said, you know, the temple's gonna get torn down and da-da-da-da, and they're like, but it took 40 years to build. How are you gonna do that? You know, they're just missing it. And Jesus is saying, I, he is re- referring to the sense that there will be a new heart given when the Spirit of God is poured into you. You can't see it because the focus of temple worship, this is me paraphrasing, um, but the thought is, is that because all of the emphasis has been placed on these rituals to attain outward purity, you haven't addressed the heart of the problem, which is the human heart. The status quo isn't working. You need a second beginning. 
you need. Well, he doesn't say you need it. Well, he kind of does. Jesus is a bit strong, to be fair. Um, but he says, and essentially, in code, he's saying a new Passover is going to happen where there will be another lamb that will be slain, where another vigil be held, and where the people God is calling to himself will be led into a new promised land. Why is this whole thing about outward um, purity and rituals, why has this become a problem? Well, nobody really sets out to say, we're gonna take a religion and make it super exclusive. It doesn't really start that way, right? Because if you're gonna start a religion, you need a lot of people to come, you know, you need funding, you need all that kind of stuff. But it's kind of like this, let me use this illustration. We've been over the last number of weeks building a tree house in our backyard. Actually, I've done very little. Um, uh, but I've been watching it happen and it came time to cut the timber to put said tree house up. And um, those of you who are woodworkers will know that uh, one of the temptations for my son was, well, instead of measuring every time, because it takes a long time, measure twice, cut once, let's just use one that we've already done and just use that as a, as a, as a model. Now, we can hear uh, the builders in the back chuckling, because when you do that, what happens is you lose a bit of the wood with every cut. I don't know the precise calculation, there might be a 32nd of an inch or something. And so you make all these copies, and when you take the last copy and lean it up with the original, they're not the same height. And that's what happens over the years as people have tried to copy the, the, the main thing, a bit has been lost over and over again. And Jesus enters and he says, things have to change. Now, moving on, verse seven. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, verse, uh, where are we here? You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asks. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things, I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you, and this is the plural you, all y'all, Do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? And he's being a little tongue in cheek because the word for wind is the same as spirit in both Greek and Hebrew. So he's being a bit aloof and mysterious, but the point is, until that change of heart happens, he's not going to understand what Jesus is doing. He will miss the motivation because Jesus isn't just trying to destabilize the status quo, he's trying to reset everything to the way it was always meant to be. Then we get to verse 14. Verse 14 says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so here is this lifting up, is this reference again to um, an episode in the Exodus when Moses lifted up 
a serpent on the second people were healed of, of the curse that had befallen them. And here is saying that the Son of Man will be lifted up. But with John, there's always a double meaning, not just lifted up to take the curse away from the people, but lifted up, becoming the curse, so that all could be free. Um, some of you know, if you've been here for any, any length of time, that I, um, I have, my parents are both in the legal profession, my mother uh, was a federal court judge from a young age, my father a lawyer, and um, she, mom, I think it was in 2006, was invited as a, a female judge to take part in a conference the United Nations was holding amongst the world's judiciary. We're meeting in Belfast to talk about the voice of the children. And uh, we were living in London at the time, and like anyone would do, we crashed the party. And so I showed up, Rachel and I showed up in Belfast, it was before we had children, 2006, and we are at this ball gala event, uh, completely uninvited, and just schmoozing with, you know, the Chief Justice of Pakistan and all these other people. And uh, we got invited to, we just got into all the things, because no one, who would challenge, you know? Um, didn't even need a clipboard to get in. And so um, we're there and we're at the uh, gala evening and we're in the ballroom of this hotel and uh, there's a man in the middle of the ballroom with crutches. And uh, so anyway, I get up and I walk up and just start talking to him just because it's so strange to see a man at the center of the dance floor on crutches and we get talking and he's the equivalent, he was the equivalent to the Chief Justice of Northern Ireland. We get talking and I asked for some of his story and you know, he tells me that he'd survived 18 bombing attempts, that he survived that long by, before they leave the house, they check for bombs under the car and all this kind of stuff. And uh, talks, talk to, you know, says, but I, your mother's told me you're a priest and we go to church, you know, we're Anglican. I said, okay. And um, I said, well, what are you doing here? He says, well, I, I can't dance because I was born this way but I, I like to be near those who are dancing. And so anyway, the conversation wraps up and I offer to pray for him. And uh, he says, you know, it's, he says yes. And so I just put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Lord, thank you for this man and would you come now and fill him with your spirit. And though he can't dance, we just fill his heart with what it would be like to dance. And I look up at him and Tears, just, you know, and he's, he's clearly a man who isn't accustomed to crying, and he kind of leaves the dance floor, and we go on. The next day, we get invited to the activity of the day, which is a tasting at the Bushmills Distillery, and, you know, you know, you know the things we have to do for the Lord. <laughs> and here's the point. I sat next to him, and he said, explain to me what happened. I've gone to church my whole life. And I said, oh, that was the love of God. He says, well, I've always known I'm loved, but what happened to me is I was filled with love for those who are around me. And this is what he said, and this is what was so arresting. He said, I was brought up believing that for God so loved the Protestants that he gave his son. But I don't think that's true anymore. I said, well, good, because it's not. 
I, I don't know what, where we were in the flight, but, well, where the spirit of the Lord is, right? Whether, you know, what is the joke? Whenever two or three Anglicans are present, there's always a fifth. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, Nicodemus was expecting Jesus to say, for God so loved Israel that he sent his son. And when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, it's like a slap in the face. Because the people of Israel and the way that the religious worship had evolved had forgotten that when Israel left Egypt, they didn't leave alone. Egyptians went with them. Some of the world went with them. And if you read the prophets and you read um, what God gave to Moses on Sinai, it was for the world. And yet they'd become so blinkered that they came to believe that it was all about them. And here Jesus has come to reset. The first Passover, God leads them, stands watch, leads them out of Egypt, leads them into the wilderness to Sinai. And it's as they worship that they receive a new identity. And then they're led into the promised land. What does Jesus do? He comes. He stands watch. He's the new Passover lamb. And he leads the world into a place of worship so that the world can receive a new identity and be, realize, as the people of Israel did, that they were no longer slaves, but children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So it's not so much for God so loved Israel, it's not so much God so loved those who keep up good appearances. It isn't God so loved those who are good at image management that he gave his son. It's just God so loves everyone. And why is this passage in Lent? We kind of talked about it a little bit, and I think it's, 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 it's a reminder to us as we reset that Jesus was led into the wilderness to redeem the wilderness. I love this verse from uh, the Psalms that we read. From where he sits enthroned, he turns his gaze on all who dwell on the earth. From where he sits on his throne, he turns his gaze on all who dwell on the earth. And here's the message. Nicodemus believes it's not possible to have a new beginning. But the life of a Christian, of one who follows Jesus, is a perpetual commitment to start again to start again. Some of us this morning feel stuck. Feel stuck. That's okay. Feel like you can't find your way back. That's okay. Some of us feel frustrated. Some of us feel, well, we're probably feeling all the feelings this morning. And to go back and start again is impossible, is not possible. What is possible is from this moment now to reset 
and to move forward with him. How does that work? How does it work? Well, you see, we have a number of things. We have a four-week class you could go on. No, I'm kidding. We do have a four-week class, but it may not help you in this area. It's, it's perhaps the most powerful prayer that anyone can pray. It's help. Help. And it's the brutal honesty of this is where I am, and I need help. I need a new beginning. The promise of Ezekiel is that of a future day, which is the further you go from the temple, the deeper the water will be. And the water, which symbolizes the spirit, is that the spirit will fill our bodies and the spirit will fill our hearts, replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and God's love will be written on our hearts. Because what happens is, is when we get hurt, we toughen up so that when we get hurt again, it doesn't hurt as much. The difficulty is when you do that, you lose your ability to love. And so the invitation is, Jesus, this is, this is where my heart is right now. It's hard, it's frustrated, it's fill in the blank. I need a new heart. And slowly he comes in and I always say receive as much as you can. Receive prayer, go speak to someone. We've got plenty of therapists in the congregation. Um, we've got all kinds uh, of help available. But as you receive as much as you can to move on from where you are, over time, sometimes quicker than others, the Lord begins to take down that stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh so that we know that he's written his law or his love on our hearts. And then we start again. We start again. Let me pray. Lord, um, here we are. You see our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the one person we will never have to explain ourselves to because you understand. You get us. Thank you for this conversation you had with Nicodemus and for the conversation you are invited each one of us into now with where the state of our hearts are. Thank you that you help the helpless. And for those of us helpless at the moment, we ask that you would move quickly and powerfully. We pray, Lord, for those of us who need to start again, that you would come and, and lead us very closely. And Lord, many of us have heard this term being born again over and over again in some ways that are less than edifying in other ways that aren't helpful. But Lord, where 
we may have made a mess of things ourselves. Help us to turn away from that and turn to you. Would you lead us, Lord, to what it means to have your spirit work in our hearts, replacing hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And it just may be, sometimes it's helpful to pray a prayer of recommitment or commitment and so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna lead us all in a prayer and I'd like you to pray it quietly in your own heart so that nobody can hear it. I know it's a bit redundant, but you get the idea. This isn't really for anyone's benefit, but for your own. Um, and it may be that you have never had a relationship with Jesus and maybe you've had a relationship for a long time and you know the church is what it is and people are what they are and sometimes things get difficult. But if you're so inclined, just pray this prayer with me as a, as, a, as a sign of wanting to start again. And again, just repeat it quietly in the quiet of your hearts. Lord Jesus, I recognize my need of you. I choose to turn from the way I've done things to follow you, to do things your way. I ask that you'd forgive me for the things that I've done that I shouldn't have. And I choose to receive all that you have for me. And I ask that you would fill me with your presence that my heart of stone might become a heart of flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.